Today, we're, uh, we've been in uh, Nehemiah. We've been in uh, a section uh, of Nehemiah where he moves from rebuilding the wall. The wall's been completed. Praise the Lord, an amazing feat. Now he's focusing on people. So important to focus on people. And we're in a section of Nehemiah where he gives the largest, most thorough overview of the Old Testament within the Old Testament. You see, Nehemiah is the latest Old Testament book written chronologically. Of the historical books, Nehemiah is last. So where we are, we're looking at uh, this Bible overview. Last week I started it. Didn't make it as far as I attended, but that's okay. So this week, we're going to pick up where I left off. We're going to be reading Nehemiah chapter 9. I'll be starting in verse 9 and reading all the way to verse 25. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 9 through 25. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. It reads, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea, on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for, your, uh, for their hunger and brought water for them from the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And it committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold manna from their mouth and you gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples 
and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbron, and Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. As the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites gave into their hand and their kings and their peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured the fortified cities, and a rich land, and took possession of the houses full of all the goods, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we thank you for your word. We're reminded in your word that all men are like grass. All our glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but it's your word, O Lord, that stands forever. We ask that this be the word that's faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of any true significance is spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last week I told you we're covering eight eras of the Old Testament in this passage. Last week I made it through two. This week, I'll make it through two. Next week, Lord willing, we'll cover the last four, okay? So that's our, that's our plan. Last week, we looked at the first two eras. They're there in your bulletin. We looked at the creation era and the patriarch era. If you weren't here and missed it, it is online. This week, we're going to look at the, con- the exodus and what we call the conquest. Now, again, these eras, they're meant to help you understand the Old Testament better. But these eras are not divinely inspired. They're not, thus saith the Lord. It's just a a way to help you remember the content of the Old Testament. So if you memorize these eight eras, you'll more easily be able to walk somebody through the Old Testament. One of the things I love about our passage as we look at it, and this is sort of how I've approached it, you see God doing something. He says, you, God, you, you. And then you see they, what Israel did. And it's quite a contrast. You see God is faithful to his people in the midst of struggle, in the midst of strife, in the midst of rebellion. And you see God's people, even when God is faithful, blesses them, does far more than they could imagine or deserve, rebel against him time and time again. Look in, in, at the we start of our passage. It says, you saw their affliction. Isn't that great news? God's people have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. That's a long time. And yet God saw their affliction. God did not forget. He did not abandon. That's good news for us. We walk through seasons of affliction. I don't believe there's a person here today that hasn't walked through some season of affliction or will walk through some season of affliction. That's one of the common things that we all experience in this broken world. We all will experience difficulty, suffering, pain, strife, affliction. Yet never forget this, God sees. 
God sees. He sees us in those seasons of affliction. Look, it says he heard their cry. What do you do in those seasons of affliction? There's a lot of things we can do. My, my first natural response is to try to figure out a way that I can fix it. A way that I can quickly get through it. A, a way that I can minimize the pain and the suffering. I want it gone. What can I do? Look at what God heard their cry. I think the first thing we do is cry out to God. God, I'm hurting. God, I don't like this. God, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. I cry out to you. And I don't know how God's always going to answer those prayers. I can't tell you that. But here's what I promise you. He hears. He sees. He knows. And He is with you. He knows all those things. He's with us in affliction. And look, it says... The people down in halfway through verse 10, it says, you knew they acted arrogantly. God knows our arrogance, our self-pride, our self-sufficiency, our desires for recognition to be known, yet God sees and cares and loves and is present even in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And look at what God does in the, in the Exodus period. Uh, we see Egypt... Egypt worshipped all these different gods. And they bring ten plagues. And all of those plagues are a judgment upon Egypt and what they worship. Think about this. The very first plague. Nile River becomes blood. Now we're all familiar with the need of water. We don't make it very well without water. We have to drink water every day. In fact, most of us here, we've experienced running out of water. And what do we do when we run out of water? I'll tell you what I do. I start to worry. And I start to go, how can I fix this as quickly as possible? We don't have water. Now, some of you probably don't worry as much as I do. And you don't have water, but you know, we all know, we desperately need water. You do not live without water. I've already said, if you don't drink anything for Three or four days, nothing will die. Basic necessity of life. And the Egypt, Egypt's a pretty barren land, but the Nile River, they looked and they said, this is our source of life, the Nile River. God says, you don't live by water. You're going to live by blood. Blood is what gives you life. Blood will forgive your sins. And he gives them a picture. You worship the Nile. But that's not what you worship. For some reason, the Egyptians worshipped frogs. Did you know that? Strange little animal critter to worship. And God, says, God goes, hey, you like worshipping frogs? Here's a bunch of frogs. And they get a plague of frogs. They worship the gods of the harvest. God destroyed the harvest. They worship the cattle. God destroyed the cattle. And finally... They worshipped Pharaoh as God. A man. They said, this man, Pharaoh, is God. And guess what our God did? He said, I'm taking out the firstborn. I'm taking out the next Pharaoh. He's going to die. And we see 
in that, uh, the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 is a massive chapter in your Old Testament. It points forward to Jesus Christ like few other chapters. They take a lamb, a spotless lamb. They do something that is completely foolish. Kill a lamb, put the blood on the door. Think about that. You want to live? You want to save your family? Okay, go take the lamb. That lamb that's been hanging out in your house. Your kids have cuddled with it. Make sure it's spotless. And you're going to kill it. And you're going to put the blood on the door. Because it's blood that saves us. And it's a picture that we will not be saved unless we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. So in the Exodus, we see God came down. Look at what it says in verse 13. You came down. I love that. God leads them through the Red Sea. And listen, when it says he led them through the Red Sea, it makes a point both in our opening passage that we did the call to worship with and in this passage. They didn't walk through on muddy ground. People will ask me sometimes, hey, do you, you like the rainy season here? I actually don't mind the rain. You know what I don't like? All the mud. Walking through the mud and the muddy ground, my feet get muddy, my shoes get muddy, my pants get muddy, I just get muddy, I don't like it. But when they walked through the Red Sea, they didn't walk through on muddy ground. God gave them dry ground, solid ground to walk on. It's a miracle of God. Think about this. Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth. God destroyed their economy. The crops, the cattle. God destroyed their army in the Red Sea. God decimated Egypt, killed the next Pharaoh. What did the Israelites have to do? Trust in the blood of the Lamb and walk. That's all they had to do. Trust in the blood of the Lamb and you start walking. God said to leave, you walk. Isn't that our lives? That's the Christian life. Who are we? We trust in the blood of the Lamb. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But I believe it's the power of God. So you trust in the blood of the Lamb and you walk in obedience. You trust the Lord. You walk. That's all we do. Now, God gives them uh, the Ten Commandments, plus 600, uh, a total of 613 commandments, and tells them how they're to live. But look at what happens in verse 16. They and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck and did not obey. Parents, have you ever told your children to obey something and they didn't? Now, if you're not saying yes, to that as a parent, then you're probably deceived. Every parent here knows, yes, I've told my children to do something and they disobeyed. We did it when we were children adults. That's the story of life. They refused, they were not mindful, they stiffened their necks. And they even appointed a leader to go back to slavery. Think about that. God has delivered them and they go, we'd rather go back to slavery, we'd rather go back to our sin. Now it's easy for us to go, what is wrong with them? 
But you see, we do it. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, saved by Jesus Christ, yet we still go back to our sin. And a lot of times we look at, there's sins that society accepts and sins that society rejects. As Christians, we typically can stay away from those sins that society rejects, though they may still be a struggle. But there's what people, some refer to as acceptable sins. Being judgmental. Being resentful. Slander. Lying. Worldliness. Anger. Irritability. Bitterness. Gossip. Gossip may be the number one acceptable sin that we struggle with. Pretty easy definition. If you're sharing something with somebody that's tearing another person down or making them look bad, and you're not doing it in a way to seek counsel and guidance because you're going to go confront that sin and deal with it, it's probably gossip. Or if you're sharing something with somebody and they have no power to do anything about it, it's probably gossip. You see, we, as Christians, we return to that sin, so we look at them and go, why would they want to go back to Egypt? Well, we've been forgiven our sins. Christ has set us free from our sin, but we still return. Look at what God did. I love this verse. It's so powerful, the end of 17. How it describes God. You are ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake him. That's what our God does for you. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion, God is ready to forgive. Don't forget that. You may feel like your sin is too much. God is ready to forgive you. He is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. His love is steadfast. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, so many people think the Old Testament God is so harsh. Oh, God is merciful and gracious. Yes, he's a God of justice. Yes, he's a God that will allow the consequence of our sin to come to bear. But it's all to bring us back to him. They have worshipped a false god, a golden cow, and they end up roaming in the desert for 40 years. They send 10 spies in. Only two say we can conquer it. Or 12 spies go in. 10 say we can't do it. Two say we can. They should have listened to the two. The majority's not always right. Because here's what equals victory. God. God is victory. And God was on their side. Those two men plus God, God said they could take the land. Instead, they roamed for 40 years. A generation. And then in verse 22, we see what's called the conquest period. Moses dies after leading Israel for 40 years. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. And they go and they take the promised land. Now look at how they fight the first battle. It's a very famous battle. If you grew up in church, no doubt as a child you heard this story. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. How did he fight that battle? The worst military strategy I've ever heard. 
And I don't know much about military, but I can't think of a worse one. Let's take our whole army and let's march around the city and show them our size, show them our weaponry, show them how big they are, we are, and let's make sure they know we're there so we'll blow some trumpets so they look out and go, look, there's the army of Israel marching around. We're going to do that for seven days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to blow trumpets and the walls will fall in. Not because Israel is strong, because God is strong. To win at Jericho, what did Israel do? Trust God. Trust the blood of the Lamb and walk. That's all they had to do to win victory. And let me tell you, if you were ever to go to the promised land, to go to Israel, it's a mountain range along the, the, Jericho, along the Jordan River. So if you were going to try to attack Israel, the mountains are hard to go over, but there's one place where there's a gap. And if you were going to protect the entirety of the nation, you would build a fortress where the gap is. That's where Jericho is. And God says, do not rebuild Jericho because your strength is not your military, your strength is me. And they would go on to win 31 battles in the book of Joshua. They lost one because they were arrogant and went and did it themselves. But as God walks with them, they have to fight these battles more and more and more. The conquest period. The end of this, it says in verse uh, 25, it says, They ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. They enter and they delight themselves in the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're to do. Can you delight yourself in the Lord even when circumstances aren't great? Even when you look at all these things in life and go, I wish I could change this, I wish I could change this, I don't like this, I want something different here. Can you still delight in the Lord? I certainly believe so. I certainly hope so. Because the reality is, we can always be looking going, I wish this were different. I wish this were different. You will never reach the point in life where you go, everything is exactly the way I would like it to be. That day's not coming. Not until you get to glory. On this side of eternity, you're always going to look at things and go, I wish this were different. I wish this were different. I wish this were different. But in the midst of it, we can delight ourselves in the Lord. What well, says he saw... And he came down. I love those verses. God saw their affliction. And he himself came down. That's what God did for us. God saw our sin struggle and came down himself, took on flesh in the form of a man, became a man named Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He came to save us. God came down because you couldn't work your way up. You couldn't be religious enough to get up. You couldn't get up there. You couldn't do it. So he came down to rescue us. And today, we celebrate communion. And communion is a reminder that God came down. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our affliction, he came down to save us. And the way we do communion here at IEC, it's open to anyone who has confessed their sin and trusted Jesus Christ. 
for salvation. Who says, yes, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I've trusted him. Communion is a physical reminder. We eat the bread. We consume the juice. The body of Christ was broken in place of me. The blood of Christ was spilled instead of my blood. That's what I'm forgiven by. It reminds us of that. And the way we do it, we have three tables up front, two tables in the back, two tables in the balcony. And in a moment, after I pray, you can come forward. Some of our elders and church leaders will be at these tables. If you have questions or need prayer, they're happy to pray for you. We also have elders at the end of every service available for prayer. So we'd love to pray with you. But grab a cup and grab a a piece of bread and go back to your seats and once everybody's got them I'll come up and we'll take communion together as a body because here's what we want to remember though we are many many nations many ages many seasons of life we are one in Christ and that's a beautiful thing so let's pray God, we thank you that you saw and you did come down. We needed rescuing. Lord, we confess we have stiffened our neck against you. We confess that we have turned to our sin and often we've been blind to our own sinfulness. Lord, we we confess that we often look at our sin and think it's just not that bad. But Lord, you came. You were merciful. You forgave. You're sufficient and you're enough. So Lord, as we come to celebrate communion, may we be reminded that our sin necessitated you coming down to come to the rescue. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.